Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I have the privilege of reading Psalm 11 for us this morning. For the director of music of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulphur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Well, good morning. The New Testament reading for today comes from John chapter 2, verse 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Well, good morning, guys. Here I am back again on the other side of the camera. I want to say thanks for all the support from last week when I got uh, Crook, but all that's behind us now. But I th thank you very much for the support. Now today we're going to look at John 2, which we shouldn't have done, which we should have done last week. Uh, so we're catching up, but we're going to get there. It doesn't matter. We're not under a clock. So today's sermon is called The Wild Word, and we've just read John 2, so we'll understand why it's called The Wild Word. So can we bow our heads? Almighty Lord, we just humbly come before you, wanting to grow in Jesus wanting to seek your righteousness and understand his methods and understand his ways and apply them to our life. Oh Lord, please pass your spirit into us and teach us your word. 
apply it where it needs to be applied and affirm it where it needs to be affirmed. And Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us unattended. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, one little error I made just on the introduction. I want to say thank you to Jeremy too for standing up last week. That was excellent and I really appreciated him standing up with basically no time at all. But he pulled it off and well done, Jeremy. Thank you for that, brother. So today we continue on from John 2 and the parable, uh, the parable, the miracle at Cana. Now these passages, the one from two weeks ago and the one from today, are inexorably linked. The Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is inspired as the Word of God. Now I don't hold any disagreement with that. I know people do, but I don't think you would either. So there's a reason why these passages are put back to back. And I hope to explain that to you in a minute. I wonder how you went doing the homework from last week to uh, try to work out, not last week, last fortnight, uh, to try to work out the connection between these two, passage, these two passages that the Holy Spirit has inspired them for. So let me just recap. We finished this, the, the miracle in Cana that Jesus can change the common into the choice and the boring into the very best. And we noted particularly, and this has always been strong in my heart, that Jesus holds a special place in his heart for the lost, the least, the last and the lonely. And that was indicated last week by the nameless ones in their wedding celebration in a place that's also a nameless place which carries no distinctions at all. Now today's passage I need to say, and I want to say this loudly and I want to say this strongly, there are a few things in the Bible that keep getting misused. I won't list them, but this is one of those passages. So let's get this right right from the start. This passage is not about anger. It's not about righteous anger. It's not about saying, I can get angry because Jesus got angry. There are four times in the Bible uh, this scene is described. And anger is the word anger is not in any of those scenes, any of those descriptions. This is the word that is used is zeal, and zeal is where we come from zealous, which is a Greek word. And it does not mean that Jesus was angry. What Jesus is doing here is about religious change, and this is a physical identification of religious change that he's about to bring in. This reaches as far back as Eden and as far forward to Jesus' his own return, and then, of course, into eternity. So if we can focus to see that this passage is about religious change, as indeed the last passage was about the change in water that was ceremonial to become that which is celebratory, if we can grasp that this is about religious change, when a change, we are never ever going to end up saying, I can get angry because Jesus got angry. And the only time in the, in, in the Bible that people ever say Jesus got angry is at this point because he, his, his anger was, um, was not demonstrated. His, his gifting, his peace, his uh, gentleness was what was demonstrated in his, in his, um, in his career, his three-year career on earth. So oh, I can't say it too strong. This is not about anger. It's about religious change, both these passages. Today's passage is still at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But in the other three Gospels, 
this passage about is at the end of Jesus' ministry. They are after his triumphal um, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the week he would die. Now, this is not one story that's been recounted in two different parts of the Bible. It's not one story that happened once and whoever wrote the other Gospels got it wrong or John got it wrong in the time frame. These are two, these are two events. The first one John records and the other three are recorded simultaneously, sorry, are recorded at the same place simultaneously. So the other three uh, the Gospels had one record of one event and John has one record of another event. Now these events, it's, don't miss it, grasp this. These events are the bracket, bracket his career, bracket his service here on earth. He got one at the start and one at the finish and they are both nigh, nigh on identical events. Now that's curious, so what does it all mean? What does it all mean that Jesus' ministry is bracketed by these two temple cleansing incidents? Because this is Jesus' purpose on earth. This is what he came to do. Let's see if we can develop that further now as we uh, examine last week and try to marry it together with this uh, outrageous event that uh, Jesus uh, lived and, uh, and conducted twice 2,000 years ago. So both last week and this week, Jesus is reprogramming human thinking and it's especially about worship. That which was used for ritual last week for ceremonial cleanses, cleansing, he reverses and he upsets. What was intended for ritual became that which was intended for celebration, and of course it was. Jesus turned ceremonial water into celebratory wine. Now, if you could turn water into wine, you would be celebrating too, wouldn't you? You'd be celebrating not only because of the miracle, but because of the wine you had. That's the nature that Jesus is bringing to religion now. It's not a religion of ritual where we have to have ceremonial cleansing. It's a religion of celebration where we've got good things to drink and take in. Today, he literally turns the tables of the temple as he turned the wedding around. Both things are turned around. Last week, Jesus tackled the notion of ceremony. This week, he tackles temples. But note, both events are at Jewish feasts. There's another parallel. So what was used previously at the wedding for ceremony became celebratory and now what he tackles is where we do our celebration and how we do it, that which we worship, which is the temple. So now he is redefining worship and he's redefining temple. The authority that Jesus had at a village wedding, he now extends to the temple. Now if I'm going to get Jesus right, if I still have to get Jesus right, which is the reason why John wrote the gospel, John 20, 31. We looked at that a few weeks ago now. The reason for that is that we must get Jesus right. And I I get Jesus right when I understand the authority he has in this world and the authority he has over me. And he's the one who, who um, calls us to obey him under his authority and gives us great rewards. Obviously, the first one's uh, forgiveness. So I've got to get the nature of Jesus' authority correct. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus redefines temple 
as much as he redefines religion and ritual. The Old Testament was where I come to to move into God's presence briefly. Now the temple, now the temple is where God moves into me and thus I move into Jesus' presence. The temple now becomes internalised and Jesus shows this in, in explaining how the body's going to die and uh, be uh, resurrected again because temple and worship are now being redefined by Jesus. The temple is flesh. The temple is not mortar and bricks anymore. And the Holy Spirit will come into me, as we know from later on, and I can worship him from myself in my own flesh and blood. I don't need to go to a place of, brick and mortar any, of bricks and mortar anymore. This is developed in John 4 uh, with the women of Samaria, but I'm not sure we'll get to that or not. But you might like to read ahead and have a look at the story of John, John 4 and what he talks about in worship and how worship is to be conducted around verses 27, 28 and 29. So Jesus, the Jews then responded to Jesus and they say to him, this is verse 18, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now this is a bit befuddling. Quite often the Jews ask Jesus to prove his authority uh, after he's already done a miracle. Now we can probably cut them some slack at this point in time because a miracle was done in Cana and he's now in Jerusalem. And the miracle might not have got from Cana to Jerusalem. So they want Jesus to prove his authority. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now this really befuddled them. They replied, it has taken 46 years, and it's taken longer than 46 years actually. It had taken 46 years to build this temple and you were going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Can you see now that Jesus is redirecting, refocusing, changing their thinking? That the temple isn't some majestic building that's got feet, that's got a, a ceiling that's 40 feet high and divided into three, three sections that you, can, you can't even enter if you're a lady and the high priest can only go into the front section, the Holy of Holies, once a year. So Jesus is saying, guys, look, I want to refashion your thinking and I want to change that which was old into new. Don't remember, don't forget that old wine is still thought of as better than new wine, but Jesus is bringing new wine. So if you want to uh, equate wine, wine and worship are running fairly parallel in, in, these, um, in these two stories and later on in the Bible. So Jesus literally comes to upset the apple cart, first at a wedding feast and now at the Passover feast. Pointing now to his passion that he's going to die and rise again in three days, he is clearly misunderstood. But Judaism could not consider at all worship outside of the temple, nor a man being where God would dwell. So Jesus is confronting them in a manner that not only changes how they think, but now they are obviously confused and disagreeing of him. Now I want you to think about worship for a minute. Worship is my focus. Just excuse me. Worship comes, sorry, the best way I think to understand worship is either what I consume my time with most or where my heart and my head and my hands go when I've got down times, when I've got the quietness, people, no one's at home, you're sitting in a lounge or you're having a cup of tea or whatever's happening, you've got a downtime. Where does your heart go to? Where does your head go to when the distractions of the world are no longer around? That'll tell you what's most important on your heart. 
the things you think about most, the things you do most, or the places you go when you're in those down times. Where does the heart descend to? Does the heart descend to bitterness or does the heart descend to praise? Does the heart send to descend to forgiveness? Or does the heart send to hate ascend to hatred? You can understand what I'm seeing, what I'm going, where I'm going now, because what consumes me is what I worship, and what I worship is what consumes me. What comes out of my mouth can indicate how often um, I worship something by the way they, by the way you speak, by the topics you speak about, all these sorts of things. So thinking about worship, worship is what consumes me, and I believe, especially in the downtimes, because we all still have to work. So guys, four points about worship that come out of this passage. It has nothing to do with business. It has nothing to do with profiteering. It is from the heart and not for the pocket. No wonder Jesus uh, clears the temple. It's for prayer. Worship is about prayer. It's not about pennies at all. And we learn too from John 4, but it's not in this passage. The worship is about spirit and in truth. Now, if it's in spirit, my body's jumping up and down because I saw something wonderful. My spirit will jump up and down because I'm giving praise to somebody wonderful. And it's in truth. I feel very sad uh, when I watched the, the news during the week and it shows Sonny Bill Williams, if you're a, a, an NRL uh, person, uh, worshipping. Now, his worship is sincere. His worship is of is, is Muslim. His worship he's been trained well in and he does with great devotion. It may be too in his spirit, but it's not in truth. It's not the worship of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the sent one who came to for the forgiveness of sins. So the Lord in John 4 explains worship in two twofold as it's in our spirit, it's not just in our heads, it's in our spirit, and it's in our and it's in truth. False worship is not worship at all. It's just lies. So Jesus has been happy to replace ritual water with a fine wine, and fine wines are always celebrated. And curiously, this celebration is about that which is new. I can't escape the metaphor that the worship Jesus is bringing to Israel is a new worship, like he was bringing a new wine. But because it's new, people will slate it and people will not want to have anything to do with it. But he's already drawn a parallel there, for those that would understand, in, uh, in John 2, 1 to 11, that the new is good. In fact, the new is best. So I can't imagine this either with the wine that's, that's the water that's been changed into wine as, as not also being a preparation for Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit now leads worship and, uh, and all sorts of uh, miraculous things happen. And people are speaking in, in tongues, their tongues, they're speaking in other tongues and they're jumping up and down. They're happy guys because they are being worshipped, their worship is in spirit and in truth. Now worship is at the core of both these true events. The events are, are sequential. Cana and the temple incident are not an accident. They are completely sequential. And John was inspired this way because that's the way the Holy Spirit wanted the stories told. Now, I want to do some overlapping more between the two stories and just discuss the groom's new wine. See, wine is the medium of celebration, is it not? Now, I don't drink at all. 
but normally it is the medium of celebration. Now in 1975, I'll tell you a little story. In 1975, I was doing night shift, sorry, afternoon shift at BHP down at Port Kembla. And um, no, I think it might have been 74. Anyway, it doesn't matter. 74 or 75. It was January. And I got home that evening from work about quarter to midnight. And my mum and dad were still up. The lights were on in the house. My sister didn't live at home by then. And I'm walking into a house with lights on. Now, I'd had a bit of, I'd had a, bit of a disagreement with mum before I went to work. Now Dad's home, and I thought, oh, I'm a goner. Um, Dad stayed up to, to catch me. I walk in the back door of the house, and my dad, who was a strong Methodist uh, teetotaler, had a glass of champagne in his hands. And so was my mum, and I was sitting in the lounge, and I thought, what's going on here? At least I thought I'm, there's probably less heat around if there's champagne out. So... After two or three minutes of exploration, I find out that Dad had won the lottery. And he won the lottery because his mate had given him a lottery ticket, the Opera House Lottery, for those of you that are old enough to understand, um, the Opera House Lottery. And he, his mate had given him a ticket a week before for Christmas, but he hadn't opened the, the letter that came. So they, my mum and Dad had wine to celebrate with, although neither of them were regular drinkers, and Dad didn't drink at all. So what Jesus is doing now with changing the water into wine, he's dispensing with the old ways. What replaces this water in this temple is going to be so much better. The method of ritual is changed forever to the medium of celebration. So having a body engaged without having a spirit engaged is not worship in spirit and in truth. Now, if I understand Revelation 4 and 5, and this is worth reflecting upon and sitting down maybe quite this afternoon before the footy comes back on. Um, in Revelation 4 and 5, you see a picture of heaven and gathered around the throne of grace, there's the throne of grace with the good Lord sitting in the middle and the Father and gathered around is a picture of elders and then in concentric circles, all praising God and saying hallelujah and all these creatures in heaven that we've got no understanding of. So imagine Jesus in the centre, the Father in the centre and concentric circles. The whole business of heaven is singing praise. The whole business of heaven is worship. It's not as you think an eternal golf course, as some people tell me, or other people have told me it's eternal motocross track. Well, I might have said that myself. It's not about eternal indulgence, it's, not inter it's about eternal object worship, which is the good Lord. It's not what's best for me. What I think is, it's what's best for the Lord, which is always best for me. So if I understand that celebration now is not bound with brick walls anymore, and I'll see that in Revelation 4 and 5, which is permanent, the ways of rituals are replaced with relationships. Celebrations are all about relationships. You go to a footy match. You go to the Olympic Games, you see, the, you see some sporting activity and if it's your team or your person that meets success, you're jumping up and down, you're cheering. That's worship in spirit that's being expressed in your body. Now, 2000, in the year 2000, exactly uh, 20 years ago, probably to the day, I was in Amsterdam 
and there was a Billy Graham conference there that I got to go to. And um, <clears throat> there's 10,000 people from around the world in Amsterdam at this conference. And Billy Graham was supposed to speak, but he couldn't because he's ill in, in 2000. Uh, but it was an outstanding concert, uh, conference. Now, guys, one, da- one night I'm standing, me and a friend of mine, we are standing next to two Africans while we're singing praise and starting the worship, starting each session with worship. And he and I, my friend and I, were standing next to two very large um, African men. And they were singing in tongues. I'm sure they were singing in tongues. It might have been their tongue, it might have been a supernatural tongue, but they were singing in tongues. Now, I love singing, but nobody loves me singing. My daughter told me when I was two and tried to sing the songs to go to bed, uh, keep quiet, Dad. So after that, I, I'd learnt it. I'd learnt my lesson. Now, I can't sing, but I love standing next to these Africans because I could sing at the top of my voice and no one would hear me. And these Africans had their hands raised and their body gyrating as only an African can in worship. That's what celebrations are about, getting your body moved because your spirit's being stirred and you're stirring your body. Now, when I drink new wine or old wine, it is consumed inside a person, unlike water that's used for hand washing. Can you see now the difference? The water is external in this context, but wine is internal, for the body has now become God's temple, where he comes and I can worship him and he he will be with me. Don't lovers desire union? And that's what the Lord wants. He wants to be part of all of our life. And if I want him, if I love him, I want him to be inside me and with me because the lovers desire union. Now, worship becomes all about the new wine in a new temple. Old wine has heritage, but new wine has hope. I'm not looking over my shoulder. I'm looking forward to the promise of celebration forever with new wine. The old looks to yesterday, the new looks to tomorrow. And I want to look to tomorrow. Yesterday's okay. I'm not complaining about yesterday. It's great. But I've got tomorrow ahead of me, as we all have, uh, where all I get to do is praise. Full health, completely looked after, no crying, no pain, no tears, and worship. Worship forever. That's what the new wine will bring. Now, you new wine in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, was a sign of God's favour. And old wine is what Jesus overthrows in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, verse 12 and following. So New Temple shows, the new, the new temple that's being discussed, it's being hinted at, shows God's intention for relationships and it overthrows legislation. It's not about the laws you keep, it's about what you worship in your heart, where your heart goes to. And then your heart keeps laws because you love the person, not because you're trying to get them to love you. Now, I want to take a little aside over the years, I've run into various churches that have got various problems. And one of the problems is, is if the pastor is a man who's a legalist and you have to do things uh, this way, and if you don't do things this way, uh, you're in trouble for it, however that trouble looks. Now, there's an absence of grace in a church like that. So if you are in a church that shows you law when your heart yearns for love, you are in a court and not a church. If you are in a church that shows your law when your heart yearns for love, you are in a court, not a church. 
Now, I haven't been to a Jewish temple, but I imagine a Jewish temple is like a court. You've got to do things this way, you've got to do things in this order. If you don't do things this way, if you don't do things in this order, and if you don't complete them all, you're not a good, faithful person. Now, we can fall into that in evangelicalism. We can fall into it in Pentecostalism or Catholicism. But that's not how worship works. Worship's based on relationship. It's not based on man-made rules. Now, in Isaiah 52, verse 2, Isaiah speaks of setting prisoners free. Setting prisoners free. Jesus liberates prisoners of religion to celebrate in the temple of their bodies. Can I say that again? Jesus liberates prisoners of religion to celebrate in the temple of their bodies. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, cast all cares on the moon. He is speaking to, to a nation of Jews, to a crowd of Jews, that had something like 615 different laws they had to obey. 615. And he says, but come to me, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. That must have meant a lot more to a Jew than it does to us today. Because Jesus is about inviting us into relationship, not about creating rules to hurt us or to control us. So I've got six brief takeaways, and then we'll wrap this up. First one where I started, I want to emphasise again and again and again because I've heard it too often. This passage, either here in John or in the Synoptic Gospels, is not an excuse for anger. In fact, the more I pour over Scripture, the less I find excuses for anger. But that's another, that's another sermon or two. Jesus began his ministry as he wanted to finish it. He is rewriting, he was rewriting the temple system to an inner relationship with heaven, not an outer relationship of rules. Remember, lovers desire union and lovers also desire being alone. Lovers love being alone. Now, that's the call of solitude. We've never talked about that. But that's a call of solitude for those that would follow Jesus into his presence. That'll come up more and more. In, uh, as we examine God's word. So lovers desire union and they also love being alone. That's what Christ has for us. What man can, what man can, excuse me, what mankind can do in the flesh, he can now also do in the spirit because he's got the Holy Spirit in him that makes him, that they both desire to worship together. Jesus did not come to repair the old Jewish system. He came to replace it. He did not come to bless it, he came to blow it, he came to blow it up. Now, that's how, um, that's how serious Jesus was about uh, us entering relationships and not just following rules. You know, real estate agents talk about houses, renovate or detonate. That wasn't, um, that wasn't what Jesus was talking about with religion. He wasn't saying, I'm here to renovate. He was just saying, I'm here to detonate. And he does that at both ends of his ministry in the brackets around these events. So our bodies, we know now, are the temple. For there is our spirit for worship and where his spirit dwells. His Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. Now, a mate of mine who's a really big fellow, he's not quite so large now, he said, I don't, my body's not a temple. I said, what do you mean? He said, i got a cathedral. I like that. He's a big man. But he knew that he had the Lord inside him. 
Jesus wants our hearts, not just our hands or our heads. Celebration and worship is good for the soul. Now, if you're a Tiger supporter, you haven't had much to celebrate recently and your soul's rather weary. But if you change your team to Parramatta or, or uh, Melbourne, you'll have a lot more to celebrate, and that's good for the soul. It might be a traitor to your heart, but celebration is good for the soul, and we have that forever as followers of Jesus. Jesus has popped the cork on religion because the old wine commands us into his presence, but the new wine and the new temple calls us into his presence. This we can all enjoy without leaving our rooms. Now I want to finish, and it's not a good way to finish, I suppose, but I want to finish on a little warning about the new wine and the old wine. In Anglicanism, there's a, a whole, particularly in Sydney, it's just the nature of our diocese. There's a whole range of, of worship from uh, King James 1611, 1662 uh, prayer book through to modern times where we don't have a prayer book at all. Now, I'm not casting value judgments on any of that at all. Please understand there's a place for these things. But there's a warning between the old and the new wine because what happens there is a, there often becomes an, an uncharitableness between those who drink older wine or newer wine. Now, this exists strong and it exists to this day and exists out of pride. Now, while our old wine is still a wine of celebration, and while our new wine seems to have more celebration, they are different, but they're not to be uncharitable to each other. Because either way, we are this side of the cross and we are this side of the Reformation. And Jesus is still part of our lives. So can I just say, if you're a young person and you don't understand the ways of the prayer book, Please don't be uncharitable towards those that do. And if you're an elder person and don't understand the, understand the ways of those who uh, don't use the prayer book, that's okay too because Jesus is in our hearts and he's in our hearts here to stay. We can enjoy Jesus now in our living rooms. We don't even, oh, we're doing it this morning, I hope. We don't have to follow ritual anymore. Let's bow our heads. I uh, thank you, Lord, that you've uh, you've blessed us with understanding that's uh, beyond two thousand years ago. That you've blessed us with a grasp of the future that comes from this uh, passion event that Jesus explained here in John two. Our oh, Lord, teach our hearts yet afresh to draw to you, to be consumed by you, and to be focused for you, Lord. For well, that is worship. That is true worship. And it's delightful worship, Father. It's our taste of heaven here on earth. Amen.